Hello everyone and welcome to this special edition of Shadow Talk, Digital Shadows, Weekly Threat Intelligence and Information Security Podcast. My name is Chris and I will be hosting this week where we'll be discussing the Cybersecurity Awareness Month that's just ended in October and going into detail on a few blogs that our team have released that highlight key points surrounding the security and keeping yourself safe online. Today, I'm joined by Kim. How's things, Kim? Hello, very well, thank you. Good to hear. And also, Shui, how's things your end, Shui? Hello, everyone. Greetings from Singapore. Things are kind of good here. That's what I want to hear. Only kind of good? Yeah, in terms of the pandemic, we're not in a superb place, but the end is nice, and I believe things will improve. Oh, I'd like to hope so. I'm absolutely sick to death of this now, so let's get back to normality eventually. So, moving on. So, what is National Cybersecurity Awareness Month? This is a month-long public awareness campaign originally launched by the United States Department of Homeland Security that stretches the entirety of October. The annual campaign aims to raise awareness about cybersecurity best practices and stress the collective effort needed to prevent cyber intrusions and scams. So if you're a new listener to Shadow Talk, you'll know that this is a never-ending battle and it's always a good idea to get a refresher on what the latest best practices are. So our first blog covered digital shadows, which is obviously a very appropriate topic for our team to talk about. But perhaps the slightly more commonly known term is digital footprinting. You know, what is it? How an attacker can manipulate the information contained within your footprint and steps to reduce or manage your footprint. This is all contained within um, our blog. So starting with you, Shui, could you exactly, could you clarify exactly what is your digital shadow or your digital footprint and how might someone increase their footprint? Yeah, absolutely. So your digital shadow or digital footprint, but I think digital shadow is a nice sexy way to refer to. It's the information about you or that is related to you that is stored on the internet. And typically it will be data such as your email address or social media profile, but they can also be extended to include other information that are um, associated with other entities like um, online reviews that you might have left for a certain organization using your email or your social media account or family photos that you are tagged in and even booking details that you've made using your information, using your email or your um, mailing addresses. This digital shadow or footprint is basically built using the information you post online or exchange over the internet. And how it becomes bigger usually has to do with you performing such actions. So for example, when you sign up for third-party services, you leave your information with them and this can expand your online footprint. And because there are so many online services and internet-hosted services and products that we use today, we tend to leave our details with many, many different organizations. So we unwittingly and are sometimes left with little choice but to leave our footprint almost everywhere we go. I see. So it's almost an inevitability that anyone kind of using online services will build up some form of a digital footprint. So with that in mind, what are the inherent risks from having a larger or unknown digital footprint? 
Your digital footprint is essentially nuggets of information about you or associated with you as we've earlier established. And when put together, they can kind of form a picture about you. Now, the risk of having such data being made publicly available is that this information can also be weaponized against you. So like if your payment information is exposed, a straightforward way of exploiting this would be to commit fraud. So if I manage to obtain, Chris, your payment information, I can make purchases in your name using your card information and best of all, charging them all to you. And we can fully understand the kind of danger that this kind of fraud brings. Uh, with a larger digital footprint, you potentially would have some blind spots. What these blind spots are is essentially um, information about you that has been exposed online that you're not necessarily aware of. With the multitude of digital services that we use today, it is quite easy to lose track of the exact number or type of service you are using. And you also can't be sure when one of these services are unknowingly exposing your information which is increasingly common with third-party breaches or exposure. But besides third-party exposure, we also sometimes on our own overshare without realizing that we're doing so. We, at this point, um, all know the perils of oversharing on social media and how others can abuse that information. But other times, oversharing isn't as straightforward as it seems. So for example, an innocent review of, say, a restaurant on Google may not seem like much, but they still can help construct an image of the type of person you are. At the very least, they provide clues as to where you live, where you've been, the kind of food that you like, etc. Um, of course, there are some personal biases when interpreting such information, but that's like another topic for another time. But in this scenario, a threat actor will still be able to abuse such seemingly innocuous information that you may not be aware you're letting the world know about. And as long as we have some activity on the internet, you definitely will leave behind some digital footprint. But the good thing is this doesn't, automat this doesn't automatically put you at a disadvantage in life. So no. Like fingerprint, everyone leaves theirs behind, but just because you have it, you're not going to be in danger. You're not going to be immediately in danger. But what is dangerous, however, is that having digital footprint and not managing them properly. It's almost weirder now if you don't have some sort of digital footprint, isn't it? Like if you try and find someone online and there's nothing there, just think, oh, they're not real. That would just make me even more suspicious, actually. Yeah. I don't understand how you could live in kind of 2021 and not have some form of online presence. Like you say, it's, it's either that they, they don't exist or they've clearly gone and made some efforts towards minimizing that digital footprint, um, which brings us on to the next section. You know, how might someone actually better manage their digital footprint way? This is, this is really, really important. At an individual level, there are some steps that you can take to make sure you're not exposing your digital trail unnecessarily. We can start by assessing just how far your footprint stretches and make sure you keep them as small as possible. One straightforward way would include making your social media accounts private and limiting the audience to a selected group of people. There would still be exposure, but at least this time it is kind of controlled you only let people um, that you trust and know see the information. You can also use open source tools to see just where your information are on the internet 
And from here, you can choose to either take them away from public view or remove them altogether if you can, because it's not always the case that you can just simply remove them like that. One way that I found useful is to run your email through Have I Been Pawned to just see the data breaches that your email have been exposed in. If you find that your email is being compromised in services that you no longer use, you can then close that account on that service or change the password to the email if you still need to use that service in question. But what you want to do is to make yourself um, a very difficult target so this means making it difficult for someone to say with certainty that the information they have about you truly relates to you. Don't leave clues and that means don't leave information like your location or background or education online unnecessarily. We tend to also use the same um, username across different services and sites. Just avoid doing that. This will just make it so much easier to uncover other information linked to you. So for example, if you use a particular um, handler from if you, use, if you use a particular handler on Facebook, a lot of us tend to use that tend, tend to repeat that same handler for other social media accounts like Instagram. So that would just make it easier for me to connect that Facebook account to that Instagram account. And lastly, be careful and aware of where you are sharing your information. It is inevitable for some information to be shared, but just make sure that you are aware of the risk, identify potential avenues of attack, and most of all, be prepared for the threats in the event they become a reality. It's interesting you were talking about um, Have I Been Pwned. That's a really, really useful service, one that I've definitely been using for a long time. I, um, I also noticed on my iPhone recently, Apple are kind of giving you notifications of you know where some of your accounts might have exposed passwords as well, which I thought was really quite useful. So I immediately logged on and changed the number of my passwords. But, you know, it's, it's interesting that other services are kind of picking up this, the threat of, you know, reused passwords and, and breach passwords as well. It's really becoming a big thing. Yeah, I noticed that on my iPhone as well this week. Maybe it's a new feature. I think it must be, must be. So moving on, uh, our second blog, covered phishing, but put a bigger emphasis on some of the lesser known tactics used by threat actors to solicit interest and trick recipients into interacting with their various malicious campaigns. This is one that you wrote, Kim, a really, really good piece. So I think pretty much every one of our listeners will understand you know, what phishing is. But as you mentioned on the blog, can you describe email hijacking and how hijacked email addresses are being used by threat actors. Yeah, so like most phishing attempts, email hijacking relies on social engineering to a certain degree. The typical phishing emails will spoof a legitimate sender, tricking a recipient into thinking that the threat actor or the sender is someone that they aren't. Email hijacking, though, is the process of inserting a malicious email or a phishing email into an existing legitimate email conversation. So it will begin with the takeover of an email account belonging to some unsuspecting user. And that is probably going to be done through credential theft and reuse. So like we were just saying, check your breached passwords or maybe through a brute force attack. And once inside the account, threat actors can monitor the conversations that are going on, look through the whole of the email thread and look for 
the perfect opportunity to insert a phishing email where it isn't going to stand out. But as with other phishing campaigns, the perfect topic is probably going to include something to do with paying invoices or, or something along those lines. And because threat actors have that whole thread to look through, they can really tailor their messages to their intended victim. So that's where the social engineering really comes in. Um, you know, they can look for the certain tells in the way that someone types to make it more legitimate. It's more uh, of a labor intensive form of phishing, but arguably is going to give the threat actors a higher success rate. They're exploiting the trust that already exists between two people and that therefore increasing the chances that the victim will comply with whatever request or um, ask that the threat actor makes. And then in this uh, trickery, they also have tactics to stop the real account owner becoming suspicious. So um, they can set up auto forward rules so that any reply that comes back into the taken over account will go into a, a rarely used folder or um, auto detection rules. So if someone replies saying, hang on, have you been hacked? Then that gets deleted and it never makes it into the inbox so they can keep using it over and over again. It's interesting. I think the biggest thing that comes to mind when you're talking about you know, email hijacking is you know, business email compromise. You know, so much of this going on right now and it's, you know, they're interjecting themselves into existing kind of email chains regarding you know finance and then using that trust as you've yeah, exploiting that trust as you alluded to in order to kind of trick the recipients um, another thing that you covered on the blog that, that really you know was quite interesting was out of office alerts could you go into a little bit more detail about how these can be exploited by a malicious actor yeah so this one's really simple but as i wrote in the blog it's just one i'd never really given loads of thought to before so I thought that if I haven't given it a lot of thought, then a lot of other people probably haven't either. Um, so a lot of phishing campaigns will begin with scattergun mass mailing of phishing emails. Um, and every time a threat actor doing that scattergun approach gets a out of office reply, then they know that they've hit a valid and active email account. And then threat, threat actors could apply this scattergun approach to everyone in a single organization. There are loads of tools out there that can help you find like the domain for, a, for an organization and just a quick Google search. You can normally find the, um, the format of people's email addresses. Um, so they can send these mass messages out to everyone in an organization. And then the more auto replies, out of office auto replies they get, the more information that they can collect about you and your organization. So depending on the information contained within the out-of-office replies, you can uh, start to piece together information about the company's structure because most people will be like, hey, contact my manager so-and-so or contact my colleague so-and-so. So you can figure out who is in the same team, who's managing who, but fundamentally who isn't in front of their emails at the point that you're starting your malicious campaign. And your out-of-office reply will typically can contain information about you that may help an attacker craft a more personalized email. So in the same way that Shwe was talking about your digital footprint, this can en enhance that picture for a threat actor. Um, so, you know, if I put in my out-of-office contact Chris, someone might email Chris and be like, hey, in Kib's, in Kib's absence, I'm emailing you. She agreed to this last week. Please, can you do it? 
So you might, you're going to be expecting emails that are meant for me. So you might think, oh, you know, I need to do this. If Kim's promised it, I, I should do it. So she doesn't get, doesn't get mad when she comes back from holiday. Um, and, but you also might have included that you were on holiday, not just, you know, on a training course or something. And you'll always normally put when you're back. Um, so in another instance, if a threat actor was trying to pretend to be me and spoof me, and especially if people know that I'm a crazy workaholic, they might email and be like, oh, look, I know I'm supposed to be relaxing, but these, this needs to be done before I'm back on Thursday. Otherwise, I'll get in trouble. Help me out. And most people, if they're not thinking too hard about it, might fall for a trick like that. So they can put more and more time into crafting these, these phishing emails, making it more likely that the recipients are going to interact, they're going to click a link or they're going to send a payment. Um, so yeah, you just might be more trusting of a cold approach when it's got these little snippets of personalized information in it. I'm just about to go on a holiday and set my out-of-office replies. So this is really, really helpful information just in time for me to craft <laughs> my own out-of-office message. Well, now you've told the whole of the Shadow Talk listeners that you're on holiday, Shway. But they don't know where I'm going to be. <laughs> <laughs> or for how long? Just one day? I'm not going to say. <laughs> I suppose it's the same when you go on holiday. You're not supposed to advertise that on Facebook so people don't come and ransack your house, right? It's the same sort of thing. You know? okay. It's oversharing. I think people need to apply real-life rules more when they're operating online. So I just think if, you're, if you bump into someone in the street, if you wouldn't tell them what you had for dinner, where you're going on holiday, what your kids have been up to, then don't have them on your Facebook profile. That's why I've got one friend on my Facebook. <laughs> they must be a very lucky person, I'm sure. Um, Kim, is there any other advice you'd give to individual users against social engineering activity? Well, like the, the hijacked email stuff, they're like notoriously difficult to spot because the usual warning signs of bad spelling, bad grammar, and no personalization aren't there. So in this day and age with these different tactics, users need to be extra diligent if something seems slightly off. And if you're being asked to make a large payment via email, then always, always use a different mean of communication to check that with the other person. You, know, you might have a phone number or you've got an instant messaging with them. No one is going to get mad if you just send a quick message are you sure you want me to do that? Because it, nine times out of 10, it's going to be fine. But if, that, if doing that stops that one time, then, then you're, a, you're a hero. Um, keep your out of office information to a minimum or did, ditch it entirely if you don't need it. If you don't uh, speak to external people, then only have an internal reply. Um, limiting your digital footprint applies here because the more you share, the more someone can tailor a message to you. Um, Protect your email account with two or multi-factor authentication in case of credential theft. Um, do your security IT training that your company provides, but also, you know, take it a bit further and, and start to keep up to date with cyber threats, even if it's not your field of business. That way you can understand what the popular phishing tactics are as they get reported rather wait, rather than waiting for your annual training. 
Um, and as an employer, you know, you can implement, implement security measures at, at a technical level, but also um, create an environment where it's safe to report phishing concerns or even mishaps so that any damage can be quickly contained. Excellent advice. I think the personal, you know, kind of, um, you know, staying on top of threats, you know, rather than just waiting for your security team to, to let you know what they are. That's, that's really a big one. Um, you know, the, the phishing campaigns, you know, various social engineering campaigns, they're going to continue. So just staying on top of that is just such a, a huge thing. I really can't emphasize that enough. Um, I'll move on to our third blog. So that was written by Shway and myself and details our backgrounds in entering the world of cybersecurity. So I thought we could just have a, a very informal discussion about our experiences so far in the industry and just mention a little bit about our backgrounds and how we got started. So I guess I can go first. Um, my background is originally as an intelligence analyst in the military, which I left after nine years of service back in 2016, which really does seem like a long time ago now. Uh, Digital Shadows is my third job in the private sector. And previously I worked as a, a cyber threat analyst in the telecommunications industry and financial services sector. And it's you know a really interesting question, you know, how exactly did I end up here? Um, I always got the impression that I would kind of draw my military career a little sooner than soon than some other people do. You know, a lot of people kind of do 12 years or 24 years. You know, I always got the impression I would leave, you know, way before that. Um, I actually did my, my bachelor's degree, you know, while I was serving in intelligence and security, and that was very heavy on cybersecurity principles. And I guess in general, that gave me a really good starting point and a kind of base knowledge of a number of different disciplines. But I don't think there's a proven route you know, of how people get into this industry. So I'm just interested to hear your experiences and how you actually ended up at Digital Shadows. So Shui, you know, tell me a little, about, a little bit about your background. I'm really, really boring, but um, I graduated with a political science degree. And if you know Asian societies, Asian parents don't like it when, you don't, when you're not in something more lucrative like medicine or law. So there was a running joke that if you have a social science degree, you might as well get pregnant at a bus stop and die. But that was not what I did. I went on to take on a job in the government, obviously. And as my first job would have it, I was an analyst covering the threats of terrorism. So actually, my future is not as, as bleak as what people will say. In that role, I focus on jihadist groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS when they emerge, as well as the smaller regional ones like Boko Haram and some of the Southeast Asian groups. ISIS was particularly active then, and we have all heard of the different attacks that they and their sympathizers conducted, especially in Europe. And during that part of my career, I look at their TDPs and also proliferation of radical material online, especially with ISIS. So it doesn't sound that much of a deviation from what we're currently doing, except that now we focus on cyber threat actors. So um, amid, amid this terror threat, cyber threats also started to gain greater media attention. And then at the same time, cyber threat intelligence, the domain that we know today, was a started to become um, a new concept and was gaining a lot of um, traction. 
And with my intelligence background, I was recruited to focus on cyber threats instead within the government. And as it is with any government agency, there are a lot of bureaucracy and red tape that I didn't like so much. So I decided to take these skills into the private sector. And here I am with you guys at Digital Shadows. Really interesting. Yeah, I can just echo your sentiments on red tape and bureaucracy. You know, that was very much evident in my early career as well. Um, Kim, how about yourself? How did you end up at Digital Shadows? Well, I don't have Asian parents, but I do have a law degree. So I'm one up on Shrey. <laughs> um, but in my third year of my law degree, I genuinely couldn't think of anything worse than doing more studying. So I was like, I'm not going to become a lawyer. I just can't do it. So I left and I knew where I wanted to work after university, but not really what I wanted to do. And I genuinely just ended up in a cyber intelligence role after applying for a few different things. That was the interview that I was successful in. So that's where I ended up. But I've been in the industry for just over 10 years. So when I started, it was a time when no one really knew what cybercrime was. Not many people were tackling it. My department was small. Everyone knew each other. And it, it definitely wasn't hitting the headlines as much as it is now. So I learned everything I know on the job. I was very lucky to work with some incredible, incredibly talented and uh, selfless people who helped me along the way, some of whom I know listen. And then eventually started to go on and do more and more cool training courses. Um, but it wasn't until I was about six or seven years into my role that I actually got some formal intelligence training. Um, and I wouldn't re recommend waiting that long either. So it was a bit of a, a bit of a higgledy piggledy route into cyber intelligence for me, but happy I'm here. Maybe that should be the name of this, this episode, higgledy piggledy route into cyber intelligence. <laughs> Certainly one that, uh, yeah, I can emphasize with, uh, with that one for sure. And um, moving on to the next question, what do you enjoy most about working in cybersecurity or cyber threat intelligence? I think for me, it's the variety of taskings that we get on a day-to-day -day basis. So, you know, requests will have sent to us, you know, to the team, as you would imagine, are very varied. And I'll often find myself researching in depth about something that perhaps I wouldn't have had the, the greatest grasp on before I started the task. Um, so a little bit cliche, but, you know, no day is truly the same. Yeah, and definitely. I, I do get the impression that you could work in this industry for 40 to 50 years and there's still stuff you're going to be taken by surprise over. Uh, I think just the nature of technology is constantly evolving. And as a result, there's always going to be some new skills that you're going to learn. Yeah. And rolling on from that, there's so many different aspects of cybersecurity. So you could work in an intelligence role like us, um, you know, doing strategic intelligence or tactical intelligence. But then you can also move into the more technical side of things, you know, working in a security operations center or you go really technical and, and writing code. And so, you know, if, if that's what you want to do, you can train and you can move across the different, the different roles within cybersecurity. It's quite a big banner that maybe people don't realize there's, there's many nuances to. Um, but the, the other thing I would add is that rolling on from all the help I got at the very beginning of my career, everybody that I have met working in a cybersecurity role 
is genuinely so into it. Like you said, Chris, like everyone loves that it's a constantly evolving threat. You can always learn something new. And everyone is so keen to help other people learn as well, because I think we recognize that there's still a long way to go in terms of spreading our wise words about, you know, what the threat is, how it can impact businesses. And even at a management level, I think everybody knows that their staff need to prosper and that will probably involve moving to a different company or to a different role. And everyone's very supportive of that and understanding of that. So that's, that's probably what I enjoy most. It's been my experience too. You know, if you just show enthusiasm, people will absolutely give them, give you their time uh, and their experiences, you know, wherever, wherever they can help you. Shway, anything to add? I think there's a common misconception about intelligence work being sexy. It <laughs> isn't, but it is fulfilling. I mean, I mean, the threats that we see every day, they're always changing. So the work is really dynamic. And you, like you said, Chris, we never ever have a dull day. It is stressful sometimes, but then in the, the good thing about this is that you also learn something new every day. And just as the actors have to adjust their TDPs, we also got to adjust the way we approach um, collection or finding the information that we need about them. Fabulous. Really good insights. I'll move on to our last blog, which details the cybersecurity industry as a whole, what we're doing good and what we're not doing so well at. And in the blog, many of the key points highlight the developments have happened in the last year, which kind of made people sit up and take notice about the technical sophistication of threat actors, so the likes of, you know, solar wind springs to mind. But on the other hand, you know, also resulted in positive steps towards, you know, stopping these types of attacks happening again in the future. So I guess starting you with you, Shway, you know, what do you feel the cybersecurity community on the whole are doing right at present? I think what we're doing right is um, how we collaborate. We work with industry peers. I mean, not just us, but um, in general, the cybersecurity community. We work with industry peers. We have a lot of partnership with government. And I'm really glad to see that um, the community as a whole understands the importance of sharing timely and actionable information. And we make sure that whatever we know gets out to uh, the people who needs to know them, like uh, defenders, IT administrators, basically anyone, at a prompt and timely manner. In my experience with in my experience and interaction with government um, agencies, they might find it difficult to share or distribute information as readily as we do. But that's for good reason. I'm just really heartened to see that. Um, this is not so much the case among the cybersecurity community. Kim, what do you feel like we're doing right, if anything? <laughs> <laughs> Lots of stuff. Um, I think, you know, all the, the public attribution of attacks to nation states is a really positive step forward. So, you know, big organizations are being targeted by things like SolarWinds that you mentioned, ransomware, but the government's coming out saying, hey, this isn't acceptable. Whichever country is responsible, you need to stop. And these are the things we're going to do to try and stop you. Um, but also like some innovative approaches to tackling the threat we've seen this year, like a lot of private companies like working in the background to um, help organizations decrypt if they've been um, a victim of a ransomware attack. And also um, the 
mass uninstall of Emotet that law enforcement did earlier in the year, I thought was really cool. And that has actually had a lasting impact. Like we haven't really seen a resurgence of Emotet. And from my recollection, most technical takedowns of other malwares have only had a very temporary effect. It's really interesting you mentioned law enforcement. You know, I think we've definitely seen an increase in tempo from law enforcement operations in the last year. You know, not just going after malware like Emotet, but you know, as you say, you know, various ransomware groups, uh, dark markets, things, things of that nature. You know, these have all been targeted by law enforcement to some degree. So that's definitely a positive step. Um, and moving on to our final question: What's the biggest problem you see within cybersecurity at present? Who wants to go first? I can go. Um, I think the biggest problem is that we're always playing catch up with threat actors. Um, threat actors are really innovative. And if you look at them in an admiring way, actually, they do a good job. You know, they make our lives harder. They make law enforcement lives harder because every time we level up, they go again. And so it is always, always a always a race to the finish that threat actors are just slightly ahead of. So that is a real big problem. And all the supply chain attacks that have um, taken place this year and into last year in 2020 as well, like they're not going to decrease because it, it's such an ease of access for threat actors. They can compromise one company, but actually reach thousands. So it's a real balancing act of how much trust to give to third party uh, providers versus, versus like how much is too much trust. So that's a real hard one. Shrey, over to you. Chris, over to you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go and say that I think even though we, we mentioned law enforcement operations and how in many ways have, it's been really good seeing the tempo I think the, the biggest thing problem, the biggest problem for me, it's not just a, a cybersecurity issue, but it's, it's kind of a jurisdiction problem. So arguably the, the biggest issue right now is, is kind of ransomware to, to many companies within the public and private sector. You know, this is the biggest trending attack vector. And I think with, with these actors being based in Russia or, you know, kind of CIS states, you know, former Soviet Union, there's only realistically so much can be done to prosecute these actors. You know, if they decide to go on a holiday and step over the border into Europe, you can kind of pinch them and pick them up at that point. But if they're just, you know, camping out and hiding in some part of Siberia, realistically, there's only so much that the international law enforcement can do to, to stop their activities. So I, I think that that would be a big problem for me. That's the first thing that springs to my mind. I think also like away, moving away from threats and attacks, like recruiting the right talent is very difficult at the moment. Um, I think there are huge vacancies in the cybersecurity industry. There just isn't a pool of enough people with the right kind of skills. So I think another common misconception about this field is that you need a computer science degree in order to enter it. So hopefully our tales of how we got into the industry will help encourage other people who don't have that technical background to think about it as a career because there are so many so-called soft skills that 
that individuals will have that if you just couple that with an interest in the subject matter can really get you very far. Um, so that's my plea to people. Think about, think about a different career. Absolutely. Shui, what do you think is the biggest problem for you? I think the biggest problem for me is I am not one of the relevant expertise or I am not sufficiently an expert in cybersecurity. So, like, um, like most cybersecurity uh, practitioner, I'm also playing catch-up. But in that, I'm trying to catch up in terms of my own skills and making sure that I am delivering or meeting the needs of um, our clients and addressing what they need, addressing their problems sufficiently. An ongoing battle, for sure, <laughs> without a shadow of a doubt. I almost feel like I should have done these questions the other way around. You know, we could have ended on the, the positive step rather than uh, the negative one, right? Anyway, um, I'd like to take this chance to thank you both for your insights on today's call. You know, really, really uh, great to speak to you both on these various topics. Um, I'd also like to take this chance to call out the blogs we were going to be releasing this week. So the first one is related to the recent Threat Landscape report released by the European Union Agency for Cybersecurity, or ANISA. It's a really good piece of research conducted by ANISA, and we've provided some commentary related to the bigger, bigger trends and discussion points raised within that report. And we also have our quarterly blog related to initial access broker activity, uh, which will be released later this week. Uh, for those of you who haven't heard us talking about access brokers before, you know these are cyber criminal middlemen, uh, middlemen soliciting and selling access to corporate targets on uh, onto third parties for a fee. Uh, you know these these types of actors have really rose in prominence in the last twelve months, um, and you know we we track initial access broker activity pretty much every day. So this blog discusses our findings for the previous quarter. And as always, reach out to shadowtalk at digitalshadows.com if you have any questions. That's all for this episode. Bye-bye. Thanks, Chris. Bye. Bye.